Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. Well, you all did it again. Uh, Enron was just recently chosen again for the sixth year in a row in the most admired company survey by Fortune magazine as the most innovative company in America. Well deserved. Well deserved. Probably in more normal circumstances, I would have had a few more words to say about September the 11th. Just like America's uh, under attack by terrorism, uh, I think we're under attack. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, now we've got the SEC uh, uh, inquiry, informal inquiry. You're the only financial institution that can't produce a balance sheet or a cash flow statement with their earnings. <laughs> well, you, 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 well uh, thank you very much. We appreciate, appreciate it. Asshole. <laughs> What's up, fraud stands? Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazdavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. You can find him on justinwilliamscomedy.com. And as always, make sure to text us at our community number, 412-285-1255. We're going to do uh, a happy hour again in April. If you come and text us at the community number, Justin's on there. Hazel is now on there. We're all responding. You could talk to all of us. You could be super weird. You could be super nice. You can do whatever you want. It's great. People are giving us great tips. Uh, I can't get enough of it. It's been it's been a really wonderful experience. But we're going to do another happy hour in April. That'll be the night of our last episode dropping for season one. That'll be sometime in April. So that should be exciting. Are you excited for that? Justin? Yes, yes. Uh, you guys, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to be back on the community text line. If you call, I'll be there. I'm sorry that I was a little late to the party. I was actually stuck at the Suez Canal for a little bit. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Hazel's really happy about that. Happy about that joke. <laughs> Justin, today we're going to embark on one of the most insidious infamous scams in U.S. history, Enron. Now, we like to always focus on the fraudster, not just the company. When you say Enron, who's Enron, right? We, we can't just like say a company name and be like, oh my God, they're so mean. Who's they? Who was pulling the strings and what were they doing? The problem is, at Enron, there's like 500 people that are the fraudsters. There are so many fraudsters at Enron it's like shooting fraudsters in a barrel when it comes to these guys because there's so many fraudsters at Enron. It's like everybody had a hand in this thing. But what it does show you is that teamwork is really what matters here. <laughs> they were all in it together. You've probably heard of the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, as well as Alex Gibney's documentary of the same title. Those are some great pieces of work. We got court documents that we're using. We got interviews that we're going to be doing. We got news articles. And all of that together will be the basis of how we kind of track what happened with Enron. Yeah, the Enron is kind of like the Wu-Tang Clan of uh, fraud groups. It's like just multiple Hall of Famers. <laughs> exactly. Triple platinum. <laughs> That's all these guys. They're so good. So, of course, for us, you want to cover as much of the, you know, Woo Enron clan as much as you can. So, for us, we're going to focus mainly on the three main guys. Kenneth Lay, the chairman of the board and CEO. Andy Fastow, the chief financial officer. 
Jeff Skilling, the president and CEO, and also chief maniac officer at Enron. And what these guys did was fucking unreal, people. Enron existed from 1985 to 2001. They were the seventh biggest company in the country. Today, that would be like GE going down. This company went bankrupt in 24 days. <laughs> and when they did, when they filed for bankruptcy, when they were done, $60 billion just disappeared from the U.S. economy. This is a company, by the way, that was growing at 750% per year, rated one of the most innovative companies by Fortune magazine, which you heard earlier, but they got that award six years in a row. And they had commercials that made you feel like they had the entire creative force of Madison Avenue behind them. Nothing suspicious about 750% annual growth a year. Nothing suspicious there. Let's listen to one of those commercials. Why? Why? It is a small word. But it is a quick, you, sharp, broach. and abrupt word. Why? It is the chosen word of the nonconformist, the defiant, and the visionary. Why? It is a confrontational word. Why? It challenges what's thought to be impossible. If you are not afraid to ask why, why? you can change whatever it is you want. Why? Why? Hey, man, why you play that shit? <laughs> How creepy is that commercial? Oh, it's insane. It's absolutely it's insane. <laughs> it's just like, just because uh, you put a British person as a narrator does not make something like not insane, you know? Well, that was one of the things I, I was really happy about Brexit because I was like, finally, the British accent does not immediately equal smart people. So <laughs> it's very clearly, we've made that line. But back then, you know, I was definitely fooled, I'm sure. I was like, oh, that Enron company. So just that that wasn't the only thing they were able to do. They had this amazing ad campaign with all this millions of dollars of, of funding behind it. But they also had people like Henry Kissinger and former Secretary of State James Baker lobbying Congress for them. By the way, Kissinger, a swinger, by the way. I don't know if people knew that. A little fun fact about Henry Kissinger. Uh, if you could please have sex with me and my wife <laughs> as well, that we could bring peace to the Middle East. If we were having sex with me, Henry Kissinger and my wife. Another person that was a big favorite of Enron who was not a swinger, Nelson Mandela, who came in and accepted the Enron Prize, which was this like hilarious, ridiculous, made-up award that they gave to humanitarians for citizenship. Indeed, this is a uh, very uh, momentous occasion. Uh, today, we, we will present uh, the second uh, annual... Enron uh, Prize for Distinguished Public Service. I can't imagine a more despicable virtue signal than to just pay world leaders for their citizenship and humanitarian efforts when in reality you are just robbing people of millions of dollars. Yeah, my blackness won't allow me to make fun of Mandela, but I will say that it is hilarious that Henry Kissinger and James Baker uh, also got tied up in the Theranos scam later on. Uh... And, and, you know, promoting both of these scams arguably wasn't the worst thing either of them had done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so fun. Our, our oh, ratings just man. went up uh, 900% in Chile. <laughs> <laughs> but when Enron went under, though, Justin, they didn't just leave the 30,000 employees jobless. Their pensions were wiped out. Think about that. Think about the ripple effect of your future. Your 401k, gone. You can't retire anymore. That's it. You got to work. We don't have a safety net for victims of fraudsters in this country. Sure, Social Security is the safety net, but it wasn't built to support everyone and everything you will ever do when you're older. You gave years to a company, and they played with your future like they were on the tables in Vegas. No, no, no. No, not the tables in Vegas. Like... Like they were in the in a in a bathroom ripping lines off the back of a toilet in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's it's not a casino because the casino has some rules, right? But speaking of like all these lines off the back of a toilet in Vegas, is there something you want to tell us, Cena? I can quit anytime, Justin. Okay? okay, I'm fine. Okay, God bless. God bless. All right, all right. I gotta have energy for this show. There's quite a bit to get through though, so we're gonna have to push it real hard. So I want to get started. 
with Ken Lay and how Enron actually got started. Why? Because that's how you start a show. That's how we explain the show. Why? We have to track all the events of the show, of the fraudster. That's how people aren't gonna understand if I just do it randomly. Why? This is what we wanna do. Spotify wants us to do it. We will do anything for another season. Why? 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 <laughs> Why? All right, now that we got all of that out of the way, let's talk about Ken Lay and how he came about. Kenneth Lay was born in 1942 in Tyrone, Missouri, the son of a Baptist preacher. He grew up poor until 11. Ken Lay didn't live in a house with indoor plumbing. That's one of those things you don't even really think about. Indoor plumbing versus outdoor plumbing, like an outhouse. His father was unable to lay pipe. (laughs) (laughs) He was the middle child of three. So he's the middle child, okay? So he was able to lay pipe. Exactly. His parents, Omer and Ruth, worked hard but could never really make ends meet. So they didn't have much money. And at one point, they even had, this is a sad story, they even had a feed store. So like for chickens and other farm animals and stuff. And one day, Justin, the delivery man crashed his truck and murdered a load of chickens in the process. (laughs) <laughs> and then they couldn't be in the feed store business anymore. There's just feathers and tragedy everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> so, Omer had to work as a trev. It's just so sad. It's like, you imagine you just roll up there. It's like, well, that's uh, about the, the, the feed store. I guess that's the end of that. <laughs> they said the last thing they heard before the truck hit the store was, Aflac! <laughs> So, so then Kenley's dad had to ultimately work as like a traveling salesman of some kind. And so he was selling stoves. And then he ultimately ended up starting to sell farm equipment. Yeah, it was easier to sell the farm equipment because selling the stoves door to door hurt his back. <laughs> yeah, that's I was thinking that. How did how do you like show someone the stove? You like come out to my my car, I guess. I don't but listen, this wasn't a lucrative thing for them. They had to actually move in with their relatives when they because they couldn't afford life otherwise. Think about all of this. Think about Barry Minko back in the day that, that always looked at his father who couldn't make money. Ken Lay felt the same way, looked at his family. This motivated him at a very young age, so much so that he was constantly working. Now, I think all of this comes from your childhood. Maybe I'm too Freudian after years of therapy, but your your childhood matters and it forms who you are as an adult. And if you, you know, don't address the dissonance that's kind of inside you or in your family, it'll just fester. In Ken Lay's case, it made him laser focused on never being poor. He worked paper routes, raised chickens, he bailed hay. I mean, he paid his way through school at University of Missouri by painting houses, taking out loans, and getting scholarships. The guy was a beast. He even got a 4.0 when the only kids that were getting 4.0s at University of Missouri were the fancy, uh, you know, uh, rich kids that went to private school and stuff. After college, he worked at Humble Oil, which actually would soon to go on to become Exxon. Ah, yes. Before Exxon went Hollywood and started stunting on Alaska. Exactly. So while he was working at Humble Oil, he got a PhD in economics and then joins the Navy in 68. This is amazing. And what's happening in 68? Well, we're knee deep in Vietnam. But this is one of those moments that if we had a time machine, what would we do? What would we go back and stop? And a professor named Pinky Walker pulled some strings to ensure that he didn't get deployed to Vietnam. Do you know where he got deployed, Justin? Oh, I can't wait to find out. The front lines of the Pentagon. 
This is when Lay is able to not only start embedding himself in political circles, but he's also able to start pushing deregulation. Now, just imagine if he got sent to Vietnam instead. Would we have Enron? Would we have any of these things? I don't know. But as he moves through his career, he's able to climb the ranks of power from working for the Federal Power Commission, then getting a job at Florida Gas. And in the early 80s, he had a $300,000 house, a fancy racket club membership, a condo on the coast, a ski lodge in Utah. I mean, he was living in it up. Pat yourself on the back if you felt this coming. On top of all that, he had an affair with his secretary. Yeah, this is like the only time where you can ever say, I wish this guy would have went to Vietnam and it's not mean. Because this guy economically screwed over so many people that it might actually have been like maybe better if he just went to Vietnam. Yeah, probably. Something, though, that that is interesting about Ken Lay, Justin, is that, yes, he did have this affair with his secretary. But in the Smartest Guys in the Room book, it talks about how and they interviewed his his ex-wife and their divorce was difficult but amicable. And eventually, Lay and his new wife, secretary and former wife would spend Christmas together. That's like the current season of uh, Married at First Sight where Chris married a woman, but he also has a, a pregnant former fiance and he made them all sit in the room together to, to be awkward <laughs> for some reason. So Justin, this brings us to when Enron was actually formed and something to consider is where it was based, Houston, Texas. Now this is super important because major gas companies and oil companies were based there. Energy was the business of Houston. So when the rest of the country in the 70s was in an energy crisis, Houston was doing great, right? The price of oil was really high, so everyone in Houston was just rolling in it. But when the price of oil dropped, the city fell. This is what's interesting, I think, uh, kind of like on a brief tangent here, Justin. And we, we've talked a lot about politics when we're doing the radio together. And I find this is what's so difficult when we talk about energy issues is that we don't maybe realize that the livelihoods of these families and these individuals that live in cities like Houston or any place that, let's say there's a big fracking uh, city in Pennsylvania or in Wyoming or something like that, they may understand the science behind renewable energy being the best course of action and it's better for the planet. But would you just stop providing for your family and drop everything and go learn how to do some new skill that you may or may not be able to get a job in just because it's what good for the environment yeah nobody in nigeria or angola wants to hear shit about your solar panels <laughs> exactly and i think this is just like a, a moment that i got to like reflect thinking about how houston operates and and all that stuff it's like Oh, I, I see this now. It's very difficult for us to talk about energy issues because it's also difficult for us to understand that if just the price of oil were to drop or the price of natural gas were to drop, that could wipe out the economic prosperity or the wipe out the, the, the jobs of thousands, if not millions of people across the country in some of those places that depend on it. I mean, it just makes a better case for having a stronger social safety net, but we don't have to go there. I digress. So Houston's important. And I, I bring this up because it is actually important for this story. And the next part, it's really key. Because Enron wasn't just a company out of thin air, right? It, they didn't just start. It wasn't a startup. Ken Lay was the CEO at that time of a place called HNG, Houston Natural Gas. And they weren't doing too well. But there was another company, Internorth, out of Omaha, Nebraska, that was a natural gas company, that decided they were going to acquire HNG, right? So that's a good move, right, for... Ken Lay, he gets acquired, and they get to save their business. And when an acquisition like this happens, usually the acquirer gets all the goods, right? They get the best end of the deal. And that means board seat control. They get to decide where their headquarters is. They get to decide who the CEO is, all this kind of stuff. But in the negotiations, Lay arranged for the Internorth CEO to leave after 18 months. All right, so it's a transition. This way, the Internorth uh, employees, which are there at that time, there were about 2,200 of them, that were in Omaha, didn't feel like they had been abandoned, right? And they really cared. The Internorth people really cared about their employees. They wanted to make sure that they stayed in Omaha. They wanted to make sure that this transition really worked for them. But the CEO of Internorth didn't really give a fuck. 
Him and Lay were cut from the same cloth, and they had made some deals with each other. And the board members of this newly formed joint venture, this acquired merger, they started to get wind that the CEO had gotten a $2 million package to leave when that 18 months was over. And then they started looking around and then the board seats of the new company. So Internorth, the acquirer, had 12 seats, but HNG had eight seats. That's actually a lot of seats. You normally you'd get like maybe a couple or three or something like that. But the real issue was the headquarters. Now, the whole time they're negotiating, Internorth is making it clear and HNG understood that the headquarters was going to be in Omaha. But all of a sudden, there was a disagreement after the merger took place. Oh, well, we should talk about this. Oh, maybe maybe we, maybe we, the, uh, uh, the headquarters shouldn't be in Omaha. So as they're arguing, as good businessmen do, they were like, let's make a committee. And so they made a committee to investigate this. And like also good businessmen, they did nothing and hired it out to a consultant. And who did they bring in? This special committee hired the McKinsey Consulting Company, a.k.a. the Grim Reaper, a.k.a. the Bushido Blade of Boardrooms, a.k.a. the Omega Fraudsters, a.k.a. the McKinsey Boys. And these guys came in to determine one question. Where should the headquarters be? Again, we like to talk about the who behind the company. Well, there were two consultants that were leading this project. Who were those consultants, you may ask? Well, the first one was Ken Lay's longtime friend, John Sawhill. <laughs> and then the other guy was the future president and CEO of Enron, Jeff Skilling. And this is how Jeff falls in love with Enron. This is what he was doing before Enron. And on November 11th, 1985, the merged company convened a board meeting where John and Jeff were supposed to present their findings. Now, what do you think those findings might have been? They wanted to move down to Houston for better tacos and humidity? Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. They had a whole deck centered around that. Well, John and Jeff didn't get to present that day. Literally right before they were supposed to enter the boardroom, they were told to wait. Inside, the smartest guys in that room were slaughtering each other, apparently. It finally came out how the Internorth CEO was self-dealing and never intended to keep the new company in Omaha, and they ousted the CEO immediately. But what that triggered was that Ken Lay automatically became the CEO of the new company. And so from there, what's this fucking guy going to do? Was it hard for him to push out the old board members that were from the Omaha contingent? And it also wasn't hard for him to buy out an investment group either. You know why it wasn't hard for him to buy out that investment group? Because he didn't use his own money. He pulled from the pension funds of the newly formed company. What a savvy businessman. I know, right? So savvy. So they couldn't call this new company the Inter-Houston Natural Gas Company, so they figured out a new name. And all this time and money went into a big search, painstaking meetings, bit. After bit, they settled on a name, finally. The Houston Oilers. <laughs> they printed 70,000 copies of brochures with the name Enteron on it. And they dropped it all over the world. They're like, what's up? This is us. We're Enteron. Look at us. One of those copies obviously went to the Wall Street Journal, which did what any reporter would do, which is look up the word in the dictionary and the definition is a noun that means the digestive tract. <laughs> what beautiful foreshadowing this was. Their company started in shit and it would end in shit as well. So of course they went with their second choice Enron. For over 130 years McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's gonna be great. 
disappointing performance. <clears throat> Welcome, analysts. This was a challenging fiscal year for the company. Due to unpredictable weather, earnings are down. Welcome, analysts. Uh -oh. But as everyone knows, you can't predict the weather. <laughs> Cutting back and forth between him practicing his speech and him giving his speech. It's just terrible. So at the end of that commercial, what they said in text was Enron had figured out a way to trade on the weather. Yeah. <laughs> so they were actually placing bets with a meteorologist predicting the weather patterns and saying you could buy certain types of investments based on what the weather would be in the future, which is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard of in my life. This scandal almost ended a young Al Roker's career. <laughs> he started off on the trading desk at Enron and then <laughs> turned his life around. He's the weather analyst. <laughs> but Justin, believe it or not, we are just scratching the surface here. We know Ken Lay is sweet and ruthless, but in this particular instance, we really got to see how truly he just cares about the bottom line dollar. Now, Enron was just an energy trading company. And remember we talked about Jacob Wool, who is still awaiting trial, by the way. And we talked about futures and how when you want to lock in the price of your fuel today, if you're an airline or something, because you're afraid it'll go up in the future, you buy a future contract. So Enron's an energy trading company. So they're betting on the future price of things. And they're making deals today based on what would happen in the future. So they would buy energy that was, let's say it's natural gas, electricity, or oil. And they'd buy it low and sell it high. That's pretty simple, right? Buy low, sell high. Well, Wall Street judges Enron based on how good they are at buying energy low and selling it high. And they want to see that they have consistently and constantly increased profits. No problem. As long as you just cheat, uh, you'll be, have a wonderfully consistent and ever-increasing profit margin. Enter Louis Burgett. Born in 1938, New York. Most people never saw him in person. <laughs> he would just be on the other end of a phone line just giving Enron people rosy updates. He was in charge of Enron Oil. Now, this is one of their biggest trading platforms that they were doing. Again, buy low, sell high. This is a guy, Louis Burgett, who shined shoes at nine to help his family make money. He graduated high school at 16, put himself through NYU, and is fluent in Russian. He came to Enron via the Internorth merger, and he was brought on to build up their oil trading operation, Enron Oil. We could talk a little bit again about the idea of a commodity. And a commodity is a thing that's like a physical item that you are buying. So oil, right, means if you buy the commodity of oil, you're literally buying oil. You're not just like, oh, it's a piece of paper. You are buying literal barrels of oil, people. But if you're a speculator, someone that just wants to play on the price going up or down, then it's super risky, especially at that time. There weren't a lot of traders and people in the oil trading market. So if you decide to take possession of like a, a million barrels of oil, that's scary. In the 80s, that was even scarier. Again, not that many people were trading oil. Burgett, though, had an amazing idea. To ensure that he always showed a profit, he was simply going to guarantee a profit. Right? Sounds easy enough. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me explain. Let me explain. <laughs> is that what they teach at NYU Business School? <laughs> exactly. All you have to do to make a profit is just say, I will guarantee you a profit. So, of course, you guys have heard what's happening with the cryptocurrencies, with the stock market. When you're a trader in these markets or whatever, you're hot one week and you could be cold the next. So, Burgett decides, well, when I'm up, I'll shift profits to the next quarter. Because you always report your profits every quarter, right? But how does he do that? Well, he had one of his traders form a company outside of Enron, 
and then Borget would sell a contract for the oil to this company, and then the company would sell back that same contract the next quarter to show a profit. They had fun names for these external companies like Isla and Southwest and Petropole, and of course, the problem here is when they started skimming a little off the top. Like when they paid out a bonus to a trader with the account name M. Yass. And it's spelled M period space Y-A-S-S. Put those together, my ass. <laughs> or Yass Queen. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, what's the big deal though? Money's coming in and they're showing a profit consistently. No one is getting hurt. When the contract goes out, it comes back in the next quarter. No one's the wiser. We just keep it moving. But what I just said was, sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're cold. Louis Briquette's cold streak was actually him digging himself into a hole. So much so that the auditors and Ken Lay and the executives were notified. Turns out, Borget started mounting loss after loss. But instead of pulling out of these positions or, or bets that he was making, he doubled down. So the price of oil was dropping, but he kept thinking, well, if I just put more money in, when it goes back up to where it was, I'll make that much more, doubling down. Enron Oil, though, was a company. It was a real company. By the way, it's not illegal to trade in this space. You just have to do it legally. And you, a lot of these companies have rules around how you're supposed to trade so that they don't expose themselves to too much risk. Now, at Enron Oil, their rule was if the losses were greater than $4 million on a trade, that they'd have to sell. Okay, so that means if $4 million is out there and we're about to lose $4 million, you got to get out. Just get out. We can't take more than a $4 million loss. And remember when I said oil is an actual thing? If they were holding more than 8 million barrels of oil, they had to get out, sell everything. We don't want 8 million barrels of oil dropped at our front door. Borget was holding 84 million barrels of oil and had losses over $1 billion. Combine that with the $4 billion in debt that Enron already had on the books after the merger, and boom, that's no more Enron. That's it. Their debts outweigh the value of the company. That could have been the fucking end of Enron. But instead, a heartwarming story of honesty and perseverance ensued. I mean, kind of. I mean, <laughs> one of their smart traders came in, and he kind of bluffed the market, and he got the losses down to roughly $100 million. And Ken Lay and the executives, though, they wouldn't fire the guy. They, <laughs> they were actually pretty happy about it. Enron Oil at that time was the only group making money, which is weird to even say because they weren't making money. They were just making up the fact that they were making money. But still, on paper, they were making money. <laughs> so at that time, one of the executives at Enron sent a memo after an internal investigation was finished. And I'll read it. And this is, again, from uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, uh, McLean Elkline's book. Thank you for your perseverance. You understand your business better than anyone alive. Your answers to Arthur Anderson, the auditors, were clear, straightforward, and rock solid. Superb. Have complete confidence in your business judgment and ability and your personal integrity. And then it would go on to say, please keep making us millions. You know, I'm sure that Arthur Anderson is going to do fine after all of this. Yeah. Much like all the other auditors that we've talked about on the show, Arthur Anderson was well at fault here. And we'll find out what happens to them in a little bit. So Jeff Skilling is the president of the company, and he would go on to also be the CEO for a short time. But all you need to know about him is that he's a true believer in the transformative power of Enron. He's a cutthroat that made his mark there by destroying everyone in his way. And he wanted the culture to reflect his mortal energy. We'll get back to him later, don't worry. But for now, I want to take you to Baja, Mexico. 
where the Wu Enron gang is having one of their extreme trips. According to a person there, Skilling liked to take work trips where, quote, someone could get killed. Yeah, it seems like a positive work environment to me. You know, I would love to have my office be the X Games, except with old, white, (laughs) unathletic guys. Exactly. That have a lot of money and don't care about their life. (laughs) And they got close to dying several times. Off-roading bikes and Jeeps. One guy got a set of broken ribs. Another put his tooth through his lip. And another went to the hospital after he flipped a Jeep over. Andy Fastow was one of those guys who took a tumble from his bike and landed on a cactus. <laughs> so it's like a fucking Looney Tune. Yeah, I was going to say, and he, and what's even crazier is that he reacted by going, Yow! It's very sad that when the anvil fell on him, it was really upsetting for everybody. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, this this cactus butt man is the CFO of Enron. Was there a, a time during the calendar year um, when you went to banks with your problems more often than others? Yes. When was that? Um, as a general rule, I'd say at the uh, near the ends of quarters, financial reporting quarters, which happen to be calendar quarters as well, and year-end. Andy Fastow was hired by Skilling in 1990 at 28 years old. He would be the one to build all of Enron's corporate structures that provided the means in which they were able to defraud the entire world. He grew up in New Providence, New Jersey. Justin, you know where that is, 25 miles from New York City. I do not know where that is. That's Come like... <laughs> No, dude, that's one of those towns where it's like, that's one of those towns where I would have a rough night of stand-up. <laughs> His father, I was actually really excited to ask you about New Providence. I was like, oh, Justin's going to know some good trivia about New Providence. <laughs> no, that's not one of the main, I mean, no disrespect to anybody listening to New Providence, but that's not one of the main. That's not on your, yeah, not uh, on your radar. No, that's one of the towns, baby. 25 miles outside of New York City could be literally... Uh, one guy like (laughs) like once you get 25 miles out it's farther you know well andy's father carl was a buyer for drugstores and supermarket chains and in high school a teacher described him as a real quote wheeler dealer i guess that's how people spoke back then one of the most amazing things that he did in high school was actually lobby the new jersey board of education to allow a student to sit on the board. Who did he want to sit on the board? (laughs) Himself. So he got himself a seat on the New Jersey Board of Education. He went to one meeting, and when he rolled in, he was smoking a tobacco pipe. Oh, yeah, I just Googled New Providence, New Jersey, and it is next to, like, Chatham, which is one of the richest places in the entire state. Uh, so it's it sounds like the kind of place where you can put yourself on a school board and smoke a cigar. <laughs> well, I mean, he he had every advantage you could possibly imagine. In college, he met his wife, Leah Fastow, which is important because Leah would go on to work as the assistant treasurer for Enron. Leah was a sophomore doing the welcome tours for incoming freshmen and plucked little Andy up when he was there at campus to be enrolled. They started dating and would go on to be married. Later, fun fact, they would renew their vows at the Elvis Wedding Chapel in Vegas. And trust me, committing to one another in Sin City Gambling Capital was certainly appropriate for these two. Viva Las Vegas. At Enron, Andy really was a standard bearer for the culture of Enron. He'd get very excited about deals and say things like, The fat's in the fire, and I'm about to ignite. Give me the ball. Which, Justin, I have absolutely no idea what that means. No, it's actually funny, because I actually said the exact same thing to my wife the night we conceived our son. Perfect. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) He was really close to skilling, and and when I mean close, this is so gross. He was so close to Jeffrey Skilling that he named his first son Jeffrey. And you may think, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a white guy from New Jersey. It's a common name. But when they asked him about it, Fastow apparently said 
quote, hey, who's done more for me other than my mom and dad? Well, I'd say Ronald Reagan for ushering in this never-ending era of unchecked corporate greed. Yeah, but you don't want your kid called like Ronald McDonald and stuff like that. That's a rough one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he tried to even play like the fancy executive part. He hired a personal image consultant to help him dress like a corporate executive. So he started wearing d- double-breasted designer suits all buttoned up. And before he even bought a new Porsche at one point, he asked the women in the office whether he should get a blue one or a black one. And again, I totally asked my wife the exact same question when we bought our 2012 Prius last year. (laughs) So here's another little nugget about Andy. In late 1997, before he was named CFO, Skilling wanted to look outside the company for somebody. So he found somebody. Denise McGlone. In 1997, she was named Euromoney's Top 50 Women in Finance. He met with her in New York, then invited her to the Enron office. So Fastow was freaking out, and he's not the only one. Another one of our fraudsters in the Klan, Richard Causey, Enron's chief accounting officer, was just as freaked out. So each of these guys go individually to President Skilling and tell him that they won't work for her But they would work for the other, no problem. Can you believe this shit? Can you believe that these guys actually talk about, forget the glass ceiling. They just assassinated this woman's chances of ever getting a job. It's really great to see fraud and misogyny uh, team up here. It's really great to see those interests converge. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Denise is probably looking back at this time being like, that's the best job I never got. It's, (laughs) It's the best thing that ever happened to me. So in March of 98, Fastow becomes CFO. And folks, this is when Enron starts a run of transactions that would be their undoing. With Andy Fastow at the helm of their finances, with Andy Fastow at the helm of their finances, he would be able to conjure up obscure corporate structures to hide losses, inflate earnings, and skim money right off the top. Bewilderment. Bafflement and ignorance. Why? Ideas. Why? Keep asking why. It's just the most critical question there is. That's one of the basic words that exist in any language. It's a very short word, and it must be because it's so frequently used. Children start with an innate curiosity. The more you learn, the more inquisitive you become. We inherit from the earlier investigators some ideas that are unnecessary. We have to jettison that excess baggage in order to make progress. We get tired of questions and we accept our day-to-day life as something without question. People who have really creative ideas mostly are people who keep asking why and why not. Question things. You can't really live without the question why. Why? I like that commercial because it's like, you know, that's like, why is like the only question you like can't ask in like a bookkeeping meeting for this company? You're like, how in the hell we got profits, but no, like why? And they'd be like, don't you fucking shut your fucking you're mouth. Fucking, you don't ask you're that. fired. Shut the, shut up, shut, shut up, shut the fucking mouth. We'll, we'll have you out of here faster than that, that empowered woman that we, that we showed. In <laughs> <lesson for. laughs> that educated, qualified woman. <laughs> the folks who, t- who was well deserving of the job and who probably could have steered us into profitability legally instead of now. No, actually, in an alternate future, she actually becomes the most hated person in America. And <laughs> yeah, in the way if- that we have short memories and we've forgotten her name, she becomes this infamous. And she's like, I, I swear I didn't know. And like, nobody believes her. And like, you know, no, if we- I'm so glad she didn't get this job. <laughs> Justin, I, you know, what I, I don't think people realize is that virtually all of Enron's meteoric success was the product of some accounting tricks, corporate structures, and just a culture of vicious greed. And I, I want to talk just briefly about the first two before we go today. Let's say I'm a publicly traded company, okay? And my company has a very specific business. We book comedians for shows across the country, okay? And our whole thing is we know the best comedians to book, and we book them, and then when the ticket sales come in, 
we get the money from the ticket sales and we pay people out, et cetera, et cetera. You know the deal. And we know that we have to keep the money coming in every quarter so that the stock price keeps going up. We got to make sure that every quarter we show that we got hot comedians doing shows and we're making money from ticket sales. So I book you, Justin, the hottest comedian in America. Say it again so Kevin Hart can hear you, baby. (laughs) People are juiced to have Justin Williams performing not in their living rooms, but in arenas. So I book you for a run of 20 shows, which means I'm just going to get a bunch of revenue from the ticket sales from those arenas. So let's say we sign a a 20-show deal. And on average, we make $100,000 per show. Times that by 20, that's $2 million from the contract that I have with you, Justin. What Enron would do, and what my company is doing here, is we're going to let everyone know that we just made $2 million in profit the day we signed the contract. Wait, shouldn't I do the shows first before you tell anyone you made all that money? Like, what if I got to cancel a show because I party too hard at Marbella Lounge in North Newark, New Jersey? <laughs> no, no. No worries, though. No, no. Because I'm using mark-to-market accounting, I could tell everyone that I just made $2 million today before you even did a single show. That is the wonder of mark-to-market accounting. Hey, who's Mark? I have no idea, but there are two Marks and a cat, and I don't think, I think it's Dutch. None of it makes sense. But in accounting, it does actually make sense, and it means that you just book your profits the same day you sign before performance even happens. This is how Enron was able to show profit constantly, especially when a power plant in India, which apparently at the time was a big risk, but risk also means you're potentially going to make money. So right when they signed the deal to build a power plant in India, they booked the profits on whatever that deal was going to be worth. And get this, their auditors at Arthur Anderson were totally okay with it. Well, how, how did they get away with some of this? Well, in uh, uh, McLean and Elkin's book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, a former employee describes it as this. And, and, and walk with me here, people. I'm going to quote from the book. Say you have a duck, but you need to create a duck on the financial statements. Fortunately, there are specific accounting rules for what constitutes a duck. Yellow feet, white covering, orange beak. So you take the dog and paint its feet yellow and its fur white, and you paste an orange plastic beak on its nose. And then you say to your accountants, hey, according to the rules, this is a duck. Everybody knows it's a dog, not a duck. But that doesn't matter because you've met the rules for calling it a duck. Cena, what the duck are you talking about? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) But the key here is that Arthur Anderson was totally cool with this making a dog into a duck shit. They were the auditors that not only stood by and helped crunch the numbers for this, but they were the consultants helping Enron with the strategy. See, accounting firms like Arthur Anderson had two businesses, mainly, accounting and consulting. Accountants show you how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide and ensure that you're doing that correctly. Consultants show you how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide so you can constantly be making money and avoiding getting in trouble. But it's okay because the people that could get you in trouble are Arthur Anderson. And you pay Arthur Anderson, so don't even worry about it. And at Enron, you had Arthur Anderson in the fucking building sitting next to the people at Enron. There was no, like, you know, wall of privacy. There was nothing. They were all hanging out together. And again, I'm sure all of this will work out just fine for Arthur Anderson in the end. (laughs) But mark to market wasn't all they did. Fastow had some other moves he wanted to make, and he was able to just bulldoze the company into doing them. To ensure that Enron never took a heavy loss from all these risky investments and was always able to show a profit, Fastow used something called an SPE, a special purpose entity. Now, these are companies that work with a large company for a specific purpose. Not too difficult, right? 
The company is supposed to contribute hard assets. So it's like Enron is supposed to contribute hard assets and debt to the SPE in exchange for an interest in the company. Now, bear with me here. The SPE is then able to go outside and raise money. So Enron's got an outside company. That company has some money from Enron, and then they take their ability to work closely with Enron, and they go out into the investment world, borrow money, make deals, get investment, do whatever the fuck they want to do. So obviously there are some rules to ensure that SPEs don't just go running wild. And to qualify with the eugenic accountants that like to turn dogs into ducks, the SPE has to have 3% owned by an outside investor. And that 3% has to be at risk the whole time. So you can't just have 3% of the company in there in cash or something. It's got to be in the deal. If it's the power plant in India, it's got to be invested in that power plant. And the company, Enron, or the originating company, has to treat that SPE like a very independent outside entity. The last part is that there must be an independent owner of the SPE. So whoever's running the little outside company has got to be independent. Here's where it gets beautiful, people. So in the case of Edrod, they would be making these risky investments and they would realize that the shit was about to go belly up, okay? And let's just take my company as an example here. Let's say I booked Chris Delia for a run of shows right before he discovered Snapchat. Well, <laughs> I booked all the profits from that deal with Chris Delia on the day I signed it. But you know what? A, a few months later... I'm thinking this Chris Delia investment is not going to pay off. He seems to not understand the fundamentals of screenshots and how Snapchat works. And also the statutory rape laws. That's obviously true. So when... <laughs> so in the case of Enron, which is basically statutory rape for energy trading... They saw their investments <laughs> starting to take a shit. Uh, yo. No one in all of media has equated Chris Delia to both mark-to-market accounting and special purpose entities. Nobody. Nobody's going to do it. We're the only podcast, only media property doing that right now, Justin. Only one. And this is what the market has asked for. They said we need a podcast to do specifically this thing because there's a, a market for that. If you're an accounting student out there, I want you to bring up this example in class. Probably don't say it was me. Blame Hazel. So when Enron starts seeing their investments tank, they send them to the SPE. So who's running this SPE? Andy Fastow, the CFO of Enron. Completely independent. And you would think the auditors would somehow say, hey, man, this is not okay. But of course, the chief accounting officer and Arthur Anderson both said, this is totally okay. And as payment to manage all this risk, the SPE got paid in Enron stock. So let's say I decide to give my Chris Delia investment to an SPE. I use my own stock as collateral to pay for the SPE to take that investment on. That's the exchange. You take Chris Delia, and I'm going to pay you in my own stock to take Chris Delia. Okay? Does that make sense? You know why? Because if you take my shitty statutory rapist investment, my stock is still going to keep going up because they know I'm not promoting a rapist on my network comedy. <laughs> They also really like Whitney Cummings, so that also keeps it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I don't have to ever report these catastrophic losses that are happening when the investments go belly up. Because as the losses get bigger, all I got to do is just give this SPE a little more stock to compensate for all the risks they're doing. Who's running the SPE and keeps doing this? Well, Andy Fastow, of course, right? The CFO. But what about that 3% rule? Isn't 3% supposed to be owned by an outside investor? Well, if Andy puts a little bit of money in, okay, that's fine. And But at the end of the day, 
No one owned more than 3% of the company. No one. All the company was was shitty investments from Enron and Enron stock. Okay, so Fastow made like $30 million in these management fees alone for just taking on the risk of Enron shitty deals. And by the way, he went and told all these other investors, like Merrill Lynch, that these were great deals. And I'm sure this would all work out well for Merrill Lynch in the end. And imagine, he's going in there, he knows the deals he's talking about, the SPEs that he's, he's got made and stuff like that. He knows that they're bad deals, that these are eventually going to go under, but he's still getting a ton of money from them anyways. I mean, of course, what? why would Merrill Lynch even think twice about it, or any other investor? This is the seventh largest company in America. It's like if GE came to you and was like, hey, I got some great deals for you. Okay, amazing, let's do it. No one's gonna no one's gonna argue with that. But for Enron, who at one point had 1.2 billion in these SPEs that were using their own stock price, which was constantly going up to hedge or protect against these failing investments, as long as the stock price went up, it didn't matter that the losses that the Indian power plant may not have worked out or that any of these other investments were tanking. Here's the last bit of this. What did Fastow name these companies? A couple of them were named Jedi and Chuko, obviously after Star Wars. I don't know why they named it Chuko. That's weird. LJM1 and LJM2, these were the big ones. LJM stands for Leah, Jeffrey, and Matthew, his wife and two sons. And again, how did Enron convince people like the investors at Merrill Lynch that this was okay? Well, Merrill asked questions because they really wanted to be sure because they were nervous that Andy Fastow being the CFO and the owner of these SPEs was a huge conflict of interest. But from McLean and Elkin's smartest guys in the room, they found a memo that Enron sent back to Merrill Lynch and it said this. Jeff is comfortable with the conflict of interest issue for the following reasons. Andy has no control of the asset sale decision, meaning it's Enron Skilling's decision to sell something to the SPE, which is crazy because Fastow is the CFO, okay? Every deal comes across his desk. Number two, Richard Causey, EVP and Chief Accounting Officer, will review all the transactions. This was like, this is, oh my God. This is like the partner of Fastow who helped build these things, was going to sign off on them. And three, audit committee of the board will receive LJM2 financial statements. So this just means the board members that are making money hand over fist would receive a financial statement that is already riddled with lies. And here's the last part that I love so much. Jeff stressed how important transparency and disclosure will be to the success of the arrangement. Here we are again, the classic tale from Gregor McGregor espousing that only honest people should come to the country of Poyas, Jeff Scaling only wanted his deals to be honest and transparent. And we all know that this was bullshit. Now that we've set up the arsenal of accounting, martial arts, and corporate structures that Enron was using, we just have to combine the third part, unadulterated greed, and we've got ourselves a party. Next week, we're going to talk about how they put these deals into practice, and how their greed was able to disrupt the lives of millions of Californians. Whew, just, that was a fucking mouthful. Yeah, you know, one thing I like about this story is kind of the too big to fail element. It's like, once you get big enough, you just sort of like, are still like, even if it, everybody knows is bullshit, you're still able to like suck everyone into it. It is the, the lie being so big, too. You're the biggest company, and you're like, why would they lie about something this big? And so all these corporate structures just feed into that. Why would they do a blatantly corrupt thing like have their CFO run these outside entities? It's unconscionable how they did this, but it was all part of that late 90s excitement around the internet, excitement around new technology, excitement around the stock market going up, 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 and up. But as all things happen, they turn and they fall crashing to the ground. All right. Next week, we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. We've got interviews for you. We've got talks on deregulation. I mean, it's going to be amazing. 
I don't know if we're going to have more Chris Delia jokes. I think I've had my fill of them, frankly. Uh, <laughs> make sure you send us a, a text to 412-285-1255. You want to give us any tips, uh, justinwilliamscomedy.com. I'm at Cena now. Big thanks to Emily Fusco on research and Hannah Shaw on the legal research. Uh, Hazel Bryan on producing, Maria Anderson on the edit. And as always, this has been a production of Zero Cool Media and Last Podcast Network.